Politics of Everything is on a short summer break. The episode you're about to hear originally aired on September 29th, 2021. Since then, there have been several more reports of police overdosing from touching fentanyl, including a recent case in Kansas City, Missouri. Here's our discussion from September. First, an Ohio police officer is recovering tonight after he was nearly killed on the job. Police say the East Liverpool officer accidentally overdosed on fentanyl after he touched that dangerous drug. This is from a 2017 news story about a police officer overdosing on fentanyl. The odd thing is, touching the drug is all the officer did. It's not an isolated case. In the last few years, there have been several similar news stories. In each one, a police officer gets sick just from being in the same room as fentanyl, from touching it or from breathing the air around it. In August, the San Diego County Sheriff's Department issued a safety warning about the threat of accidental fentanyl overdoses. The video made national news. It also drew a lot of skepticism. Are these kinds of overdoses even medically possible? And if they're not, then what is happening? Today on the show, we're talking fentanyl, the war on drugs, and the psychology of American policing. I'm Alex Perrine. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. Our first guest is Dan McQuaid, a writer at Defector Media. Dan wrote about that San Diego County Sheriff's Department video. The video showed a patrol deputy having a very negative reaction to exposure to fentanyl. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us what happens in this video? The video shows it's a patrol deputy, and I believe he was still like in training. It's the body cam footage of both him, but mainly his corporal. The deputy is like lying flat on the ground, and he appears like maybe passed out. The deputy is administering Narcan. Naloxone is the generic name for it. So what you would give to someone who had had an overdose? Yes, Yes, able to instantly reverse an opiate overdose. And they cut to footage of him in the ambulance going away and taking him to the hospital. Five, are you okay? Talk to me. Sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. You're okay. Don't be sorry. There's nothing to be sorry about. I got you, okay? I'm not gonna let you die. The narrative of the video then is these sheriff's deputies, they were exposed to fentanyl in the course of their job. And then this is a dramatic produced video about how this deputy overdosed from that exposure, had to be rushed to the hospital. And it's sort of meant to highlight the dangers that these police officers face every day in their fight in the war on drugs. Is that a fair way to describe the thrust of it? That is sort of the main crux of the video. It's a bit of a propaganda slash PSA. The video was titled The Dangers of Fentanyl. So this video came from the San Diego Sheriff's Department, and it did a very successful job of getting their narrative out there, which is that these fentanyl overdoses just from exposure are dangerous to police. Is this just a narrative that's coming out of the San Diego Sheriff's Department, or is there a broader narrative from other police departments about this phenomenon? So this has been a story for, I would say, about five years now. The sort of patient zero for this thing came when the DEA in 2016 released like an alert to law enforcement. I'm Jack Riley, Deputy Administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration. And I want to take a minute today to talk to you about something very important. As a matter of fact, it could kill you. And that's fentanyl. It was sort of similar to the San Diego thing, not as slickly produced, but 
It talked with some law enforcement officers in Atlantic County, New Jersey, and they talked about how they had come into contact with fentanyl. And it said that they had suffered an overdose. If I can imagine or describe a feeling where your body's completely shutting down and, and you know, preparing to uh, stop, stop living, you know, that's, 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 where, that's the feeling I felt. This communication from the DEA not only made the press, but it made its way into sort of law enforcement circles. People shared this information. And so then there would be news stories about an officer, usually a narcotics cop, who was processing drugs or processing an arrest and touched fentanyl or came into contact with fentanyl in some way and had overdosed and had to be either revived with Narcan or taken to the hospital or some sort of. You have held fentanyl. You have been near fentanyl. You have been exposed with skin contact, I believe, to it? Yes, yeah. Did you have to be hospitalized? No, I did not. I have touched plenty of different drugs, but it simply doesn't work this way. I mean, it sort of just makes sense, right? If it were skin soluble, you know, why would people take the time to shoot up? If it were that sort of strong, you wouldn't need to put the drug into a vein of your body in order to get a euphoric high. People seem to treat it as if it's like a poison in like a movie or something, you know, like... Like it's radioactive or... Yeah, like something that you could just touch and it would kill you. But the truth is, is that it has to be consumed in some other way in order to, you know, achieve its desired effect of getting you high. And so that's why you would need to smoke it or snort it or injecting is probably the most common. One thing I want to clarify is there is such a thing as a fentanyl patch. So there is a version of fentanyl that you can apply to the skin and it can deliver the fentanyl. And so some people who see this thing of police overdosing from touching it might think, oh, well, maybe it can work that way. What's the difference? Sure. So there's two things to talk about here. So there is medical fentanyl, right? There is fentanyl that is used in surgeries or in patches. It's used for pain relief mainly. But this fentanyl is not what is getting out in the drug supply. The drug supply is all illicitly manufactured fentanyl. Uh, Let's say not all, but almost all, right? And what form is that usually available in? A powder, or it can be pressed into a pill, or it can be a liquid. And it would never look like a patch. People do use fentanyl patches recreationally, but they don't, you know, they may just put them on. People like lick them. But the way a fentanyl patch works is it releases the drug slowly into your bloodstream. So you don't get like an instant high from a fentanyl patch unless you do something else to it. Like the way a fentanyl patch works is yes, it is skin soluble, but it's like a specially designed polymer on the patch that sends it into your bloodstream. It's not something you would find in recreational drug supply. And we should explain how you have come to hold it and have come to know how people use it. And it's from your volunteer work. For over a year, I've been a volunteer at Prevention Point Philadelphia, which is a needle exchange and social services provider in the Kensington section of the city. I want to make it clear, like, I'm not a first responder. I'm not a a medic or anything. But you've seen someone experiencing a fentanyl overdose. Yes, I've seen it. I can't even tell you how many times. And does it look like what happened to that deputy in that video? Not really. I'm using the National Harm Reduction Coalition's signs of an overdose here. And like, obviously, like some of it fits, right? Loss of consciousness, you know, 
breathing may be slow and shallow and erratic. And that does what it sort of seems, looks like in the video. But the one thing that's like, I would say the most noticeable feature of an overdose is that like the skin sort of turns like bluish purple if you're like white and if you are a darker skin person, it sort of turns like grayish ashen. And that did not appear to be present in the video of the San Diego officer overdosing. But I mean, it was a situation where I didn't even really need to see the video to know that it was not an overdose. Police officers are worried about touching fentanyl and overdosing and they're having panic attacks as a result. Some people when, who don't believe this video think it's like, it's an intentional, you know, it's a, it's a it was an intentional fake. It was a performance. Yeah. And I don't really, I don't really think it is. If a police officer is using, is using opiates on the job, they are likely to get arrested for it. And it'll make the news as that. These are officers who are legitimately having panic attacks because they think they can overdose by touching fentanyl. Right. Some people were saying, like, they're taking it themselves when they're, like, doing a drug bust. They're taking it themselves. You think that's unlikely? I think it's unlikely, too. And one reason is – one reason I think also think that's unlikely is because what you describe, you refer to the sort of euphoric high you get from it. And none of these police officers, yeah. none of them are getting the reason people do the drug in the first place. Right. So a man who I talked to from my article is named Douglas Hexel, and he's a firefighter in New York. He runs a company called Rescue Med NY that runs seminars for first responders, sort of teaching them the actual dangers of being around drugs. But basically what it seems like he does is he like tries to stop first responders from having panic attacks on mm. the job because of this misinformation. He is the one who told me that, you know, no one I've ever talked to who has had one of these things has said that they've had a euphoric high before mm -hmm. experiencing it. And in general, they should. Right. If it were an actual overdose, I mean, you would get high first. So it's, it seems that in the video, what's being shown, there is something happening. It's, in your opinion, it's likely a panic attack. I'm trying to figure out, like, what is at stake in the video presenting the panic attack as a fentanyl overdose? Like, what are the real world consequences for that being the narrative that's out there? this idea that cops can overdose just from touching or being near fentanyl. Sure. So, I mean, you know, the idea of this, if fentanyl is so dangerous, it can, you know, kill you just from touching it. I mean, I would say the main danger from that is to drug users. So now they know that that isn't how it works. But if someone overdoses a nearby, not even, you know, a nearby stranger, maybe even a first responder may be like, oh, well, I don't want to get too close or else... I might sort of suffer this contact high as well. And so I would say people may be less likely to sort of help out if they are worried about them suddenly suffering an overdose too, just because they're in contact with someone who is. Do you know of any cases in which drug users have been prosecuted for exposing police to fentanyl? So in 2018, a man in Ohio pleaded guilty to assault on a peace officer after an officer touched fentanyl powder that had fallen onto, I believe, the police officer's shirt. Mm -hmm. And then he had what was most likely a panic attack. Right. He pleaded guilty to assault and drug charges and spent six years in prison. That officer, Christopher Green, was fired last June for, uh, I'm reading here, more than two dozen violations of the policy manual, including dishonesty, discourteous treatment of the public, and gross <laughs> misconduct. I like wow. the phrase discourteous treatment of the public. Mm -hmm. that is I didn't realize a cop could be fired for that. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> he, of course, denies the allegations. <laughs> of course. 
So, wow, the consequences of this really can be incredibly steep for people who are using drugs, facing inflated penalties. I mean, in this case, this is someone going to prison for assault for an action that most people would really not recognize as assault. I mean, he probably was guilty of the drug charges if they found him in possession of fentanyl, but assault does not seem to make any sense. Right. Thanks so much, Dan. That was, this was awesome. Oh, thank you. I think we've established that while something is going on with these police officers, it's almost definitely not a fentanyl overdose. Misidentifying what's going on with these officers has some real costs. But fentanyl overdoses are a huge problem. After a short break, we'll talk with Timothy McMahon King, who wrote a book about the opioid crisis. He says the way we're trying to fight that crisis is just making it worse. Before the break, we were talking about these reported overdoses. But why fentanyl? Why aren't we hearing about police overdoses from exposure to other drugs? We're joined now by Timothy McMahon King, who's written about the opioid crisis. Tim, why do you think we keep hearing about reported fentanyl overdoses? Police come into contact with a whole range of drugs. What's different about fentanyl? Well, for a lot of folks, this feels like it came out of nowhere. If you look 20 years ago, it was incredibly rare to hear about a fentanyl-related overdose. In fact, it was probably around 1,000 people a year. And in 2020, we hit 57,000 overdoses related to fentanyl. And so this will sound scary to folks, and especially in the midst of a viral pandemic. People have heard for years now about the opioid epidemic, and it sounds kind of like this drug is evolving in a way that it is getting deadlier and spreading. There's some important distinctions because fentanyl isn't a virus. It doesn't evolve. And in fact, the reason why we are seeing an uptick in fentanyl across the country is a pretty simple explanation, even if it's counterintuitive, and that is federal drug policy. And it is often referred to as the iron law of prohibition. People who had been using prescription opioids when the federal government cracked down on that It didn't stop the problem. It moved people to street heroin. And when smugglers were bringing in street heroin, what did they do? They were motivated to use a more potent synthetic opioid, fentanyl. And so now that's why we see it across the country is a natural result of these market forces that we've seen before and we're seeing play out now with deadly consequences. So just to make sure I've got that right, When we're talking about prescription opioids, you're talking about something like OxyContin, which is the drug produced by Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family, which has faced very high profile litigation for all the harm that has done to people who ended up getting addicted to it, overdosing on it. And I think most people seeing that prosecution would think this is a really good thing. This company that was pushing this drug onto people is facing consequences. And it sounds like what you're talking about is an unintended consequence of OxyContin and drugs like OxyContin being pulled back has meant that the other drug to go to is now fentanyl, which is even more dangerous. Absolutely. And I have no love for Big Pharma and I have no love for the Sacklers. Fine with them being punished, but the problem is is it's taken us away from the true culprit. I used to think of the war on drugs as kind of like showing up to a big fire with a squirt gun. It just wasn't a very effective approach. And now I see the war on drugs as showing up to a grease fire with a fire hose Mm. (laughs) and actively making the problem worse. That's what these policies have done. 
we are seeing people die as a result of federal policy. So I'm an expecting parent, and we just went through a class learning about what to expect. And the hospital had to dedicate an entire section on fentanyl because people are freaking out about the drug. It's so common in hospitals, right? Exactly. And in fact, it is now one of the most common opioids used for pain relief during labor because it has been shown to have the least amount of side effects. Wow. So what we use intentionally in a hospital setting, because it is so unlikely to have problems, when it's on the street and people don't know the dosage, they aren't educated on how to use it and how it might interact with other drugs like alcohol. And it could be potentially contaminated because there's a big difference between pharmaceutical grade fentanyl and fentanyl that you are getting on the streets. They are two different beasts. And one is safe when used properly. And the other is what's driving these deaths across the country. I mean, that makes me want to ask like the most basic question of all, which is, okay, what is fentanyl? It's an opiate. It's common in hospitals. How is it common in hospitals and also the most dangerous street drug? How is it both of those things? So fentanyl was synthesized first in the 1960s. And what you're often looking for is most of our opioids always come from an opium poppy base. And so we first had opium usage, then that was refined into morphine. Morphine was further refined into diacetyl morphine, which is now commonly known as heroin. Mm. And we have a whole bunch of these different kinds of drugs that are derived from the natural opium poppy. Now, of course, that's fairly expensive because you have to rely on raising a crop and then processing that crop and then turning it into the chemical you're looking for. And so, of course, scientists were looking for a way of how do we synthesize this with other base chemicals that don't require the opium poppy? And that was successful in the creation of fentanyl. If you've ever had you know, full general anesthesia, chances are you were under the influence of fentanyl for a short period of time because it is such a potent but relatively short-acting opioid. Most people who are using drugs didn't have any interest in fentanyl because it's harder to know how much you're taking, and they, people know that's more dangerous. Heroin was the drug that people were looking for. Slowly, the supply of heroin became laced with fentanyl and then replaced entirely. Mm. And so as that shift has happened, we see these deaths skyrocket, and it is a predictable outcome of prohibition. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember reading, Lord knows how correct it was, but I remember reading some Village Voice story probably 20 years ago about how heroin would not be causing so many deaths if it wasn't laced with so many things. And that made it seem to me that like from a harm reduction sense, as you say, everything we're doing to fix the problem of overdoses is not helping because nothing that we are doing policy-wise is making it more likely that your heroin is pure. Maybe that sounds like a perverse thing to want, but if we want people to stay alive, we don't want them taking an unknown amount of fentanyl. And this is the big question. Is our goal keeping people alive and keeping people healthy, or is it fighting a particular substance? I was hospitalized for several months. I was in the ICU. My parents were called in to come and say goodbye because the doctors thought they were going to lose me. And over time, I was put on heavy doses of opioids, including both fentanyl and Dilaudid. When I was sent home, what happened next was not inevitable, but not uncommon, is I developed a substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. And I had free access 
to heavy doses of both fentanyl and Dilaudid. And Dilaudid is another opioid that's typically considered about 10 times more potent than heroin. Hmm. And so even when I was using way off script, my chances of overdose were next to nothing because wow. I knew how much I was taking and it was pure and I knew not to mix it with any other drugs. Mm. But what happened next is not what happens for most people. My doctor saw what was happening with my prescriptions, that they were running out faster and faster. And he sat me down and he said, Tim, I want you to know you're addicted to your pain medicine. My immediate reaction was to fight with him and to say, no, I'm actually still in pain, which I was. But then he completely disarmed me by saying, but you didn't do anything wrong. And I'm not going to take your pain medicine away from you when you need it, if you'll be willing to take less over time. And we made that deal with each other that day. And over time, and with some cognitive behavioral therapy, I was able to step down from the opioids, deal with my substance use disorder, and go back to work and go on living my life while I had access to safe supply of the drug that I was addicted to. That is so counterintuitive for most people who think the drug is inherently evil or who think that you need to go abstinent all at once. That is the path for some people, but that's not the case for a lot of folks. And that wasn't the case for me. And what shocks me and that I didn't know at the time and learned years later is that what my doctor did was likely illegal and that he could have been criminally held accountable if it had been found out that he recognized I had a substance use disorder and continued to prescribe me that medication. And yet, it is actually one of the most effective ways to help keep someone like me alive and healthy until they find that path to some sort of stability in their life. We treat very few people who are using illicit drugs that way. But it does seem like it would be more effective. Why can't the war on drugs as a policy, as a sort of government policy or a state action, why can't they get themselves to something closer to that approach? So I think one of the key things that we're facing is misunderstanding about what drugs are and stigma around the people who use them. There is a belief that there are certain substances that are inherently evil and degrade your moral character. And that if you use them even once, they are then the direct cause of addiction. And each one of those statements is false. As long as we believe that the drugs are inherently evil, then people will continue to support a war. But we've seen other countries take a different route. We saw Portugal completely decriminalize all drugs and start spending more money on treatment and support for people who use drugs than they did for enforcement. And we've seen Switzerland now for over 20 years have an effective heroin-assisted treatment program. So that means that if you have a substance use disorder and you've tried other kinds of recovery and it hasn't worked for you, you can show up and get free heroin twice a day hmm. at a government-run clinic. And the success rates have been so much better than what we are seeing in the United States. If there was ever a serious push in the United States to move from our current illicit market to actually having a regulated market where people had access to a drug that they were addicted to in a safe way, I think the biggest opposition we'd see globally are the heads of cartels because it would put them out of business. And that's what happened in Switzerland. The illicit drug market, by and large, dried up. Other countries have done it. We need the political will to do it too.
So apart from like ending the drug war, right, speaking as someone who is on the other side of addiction, what should we actually be doing to prevent people from dying of fentanyl overdoses? So first thing is, I think everyone should have access to what I had access to. And that is a safer supply in a regulated way that is able to keep them alive. And we also need to decriminalize possession. This is one important piece of legislation that's before Congress right now, the Stop Fentanyl Act. That is going to be a piece of legislation that could take immediate steps forward. And I think there would be the political will to pass something like this. Unfortunately, right now with the Biden administration, they have said that they were against the war on drugs and have now come in and said, long live the war on drugs. But now this is the new fall 2020 edition. It's a different version of the same mistaken mentality. The White House just recommended to Congress to extend what they call like the fentanyl analog classification to make sure that fentanyl and fentanyl-like substances are Schedule One, which increases criminal penalties for anyone caught with them or distributing them. Mm -hmm. It had been temporary scheduling before. 70% of the people who've been sentenced under that are people of color. So once again, we are seeing racism inside of the system, targeting people who are black and brown when we aren't doing anything to solve the problem. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. So it makes sense that fentanyl is at the center of fears of overdose because it's been portrayed as so uniquely dangerous and because there's more of it around now than there has been before. But the other piece of this story is the police and the way that the officers in these reports specifically react to being around fentanyl. After a short break, we're talking to Patrick Blanchfield, who's written about police psychology and police culture. We're going to ask him how police are trained to approach fentanyl and what these supposed overdoses tell us about the legitimacy of American policing. Would you like to hear more from TNR? Every day, our writers and editors work to bring you the reporting and analysis you need to make sense of the world but we can't do it without you. Please consider subscribing to The New Republic with our special offer at tnr.com slash special offer. That's tnr.com slash special offer. Patrick Blanchfield is a writer who has studied psychoanalytic theory and clinical practice. He writes frequently about the police. Last year, he wrote a feature on Cop Talk for The New Republic. Hey, Patrick, thanks for joining us again. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to see you all. So I think we have established that what's happening in this video is not we are not witnessing a fentanyl overdose. What is causing cops to act like this? Okay, so caveat up front, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not, <laughs> not that kind of doctor. But when I see something like that, it looks like he's having a panic attack of some kind, right? That whole, like, you can't breathe, you seize up, whatever. But it's a little more florid. And at that point, I think we could start using what mental health professionals or like the DSM might call like a conversion disorder or a somatoform conversion disorder, which is sort of the contemporary name for what was sometimes called hysteria or hysterical fit. Uh, and I think that's the lens to look through this, both as like an individual phenomena, but as exposing some stuff about policing and sort of this is a crisis within that or as a symptomatic crisis. So we talked a little bit, actually, in our episode on Havana syndrome about conversion disorder. How would you define it? The contemporary definition of a conversion disorder would be neurological symptoms with no clear neurological cause. 
people are probably familiar with what in the 19th century, early 20th century was called hysteria as a medical condition. And in the case of like classical hysteria, a lot of those symptoms would present as temporary paralysis. People's limbs would lock up. They would start screaming, wailing, no apparent reason. And just to stipulate too, hysteria in this sense never went away. It does sound like something from modern perspective. It sounds quaint and, and it sounds like, well, we're much too modern for that. But I mean, it didn't go away. It's estimated that 10 to 15 percent of people who will show up in a modern neurologist's office will be having some type of con conversion disorder. Again, they'll have strange lethargy or fits of paralysis, et cetera, for which there isn't a clear organic cause, even when we throw fMRIs, et cetera. What is, I think, interesting is to think about the, the individual symptoms of a conversion disorder. They're not just symptoms of the individual. They express symptoms of the society in general, mm -hmm. and specifically symptoms that have a lot to do with collective fantasies, fears, anxieties, but above all, with certain types of social contradictions that will put people in positions of, well, of breaking down and expressing those symptoms symbolically. The symptom reflects something. We're saying basically conversion disorder is a simple example of it would be that if someone is feeling intense stress, it manifests with physical symptoms. Yes. And so if we're looking at police, what is the focus of that stress? When I think about police, and oh, I should just say, if you'll forgive me to make one more caveat here, right? None of what I'm saying here, and I think anyone who studies this will say the same thing. When we talk about a conversion disorder, it's not the same thing saying people are pretending. Right. right. That suffering is real. When it comes to police... I think police embody and enforce a whole series of contradictions involving power, involving vulnerability, involving social ideological things. Above all, like the good guy, bad guy dichotomy and maintaining the boundary mm. that is the blue line. And when you, your whole job is maintaining boundaries, but also those boundaries are kind of unstable and full of contradictions. Well, it's probably not surprising that people develop conversion disorders and contagion fears specifically, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they seize up or they act out. Maybe it's sort of an obvious contradiction, but police are both encouraged to act as superhuman warriors and constantly encouraged to feel under siege and feel vulnerable. It's just part of the training and it's part of the entire atmosphere of policing is both like strength and, and this constant, constant uh, existential threat. I don't know if anyone's seen the Netflix documentary Flint Town. It's a documentary project where a bunch of filmmakers follow people in the Flint Police Department. It's a lot of shadowing cops as they walk around. But there's one particular scene that I think gets at all these things. This is right after there were those Dallas sniper attacks. A bunch of police officers in Flint, they get a briefing and their police chief or whoever is done it tells them, well, you got to go out there with a full day's worth of ammunition and food because you could be held down in an extended gunfight with a sniper for 24 hours. One of these cops is driving around. A cop who, incidentally, you later learn has at least one use of force with a fatality on his record, hmm. who is talking directly looking into the camera about the stresses of the job about how it's all politicized, about how when there's a new mayor, you could get fired, about how a new chief could decide that you don't need to work this shift anymore, about how you could lose your insurance, et cetera, et cetera. And then it seamlessly blends into his talking about how everyone else on the street corner could possibly kill them, or how you could get murdered anytime you pull someone over. In other words, there's this whole slippage or fluidity between what's perceived to be employment precarity and threats from violent others in the streets. And they totally bleed into one another while this cop, who again, mind you, has killed someone and gotten away with it, is scanning the street corners in this mode of hypervigilance. 
So what you're describing there is this individual enumerating fears and then sort of acting on them. And that's like a personal response that lots of people have. But is there also training that cops are being given, for instance, about the warrior cop mentality? Can you tell us what that is and kind of what it teaches? Yeah. So there is a whole bunch of training on this, and that's sort of the institutional thing, right? So it's not just a culture of them feeling precarious. If you go into a police academy, and and lots of people have written about this, you're going to watch a lot of videos of cops getting killed. Ambushed. You're right. going to get ambushed. You're going to hear everyone tell you, well, within if the moment, that moment where you're walking up to serve someone a ticket, they can shoot you through their door with a high powered rifle that you never saw. Right. Any given encounter could be lethal. Again, talk about contradictions that are kind of impossible. You're supposed to treat the community with dignity, courtesy and respect, but also they're going to constantly kill you. Mm. It's this odd contradiction of be hyper vigilant and assert control at all times, but also treat people with human dignity and respect. Right. And what this produces, I'm honestly surprised that more cops don't have panic attacks like on the shift. <laughs> I think that that really interesting dichotomy that you described so well of this community wants you dead and your job is to serve it. I see that dichotomy when like if you follow like a official police precinct, the official Twitter, and then you follow the uh, police union Twitter because the official police precinct Twitter will be like, we're playing basketball with the teens today. And then the p- police union Twitter will be like, this monster was let out on bail after stepping on an officer. Like, we have to get this guy off the streets. Like, that's that's sort of it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's untenable, right? You have to walk around like, look, holding two contradictory thoughts in your head is a sign of being an intelligent person or a normal mm. one. But holding two fundamentally opposed... <laughs> Moral imperatives while walking around with a gun in a job that steadily degrades your humanity one way or another, that's going to have a different cash out. The output there is not just mild hypocrisy or contradiction. That's dead people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is why I think the hysteria example is really helpful, because like one thing I think hysteria is all about, historically speaking, is it's about expressing in the symptoms certain dynamics of power. You have these police literally seizing up and they're doing it as an expression on the one hand, I think of their fear of the people that they're supposed to be protecting, but it's also a message to the public in general, not necessarily consciously. It's an expression of a, well, look at all I'm doing for you. Look how much I suffer. I face things that can kill me that you couldn't possibly believe. I could literally sniff some fentanyl from like a block away and die. How dare you question Anything I do ever. The police officer who is feeling embattled for political reasons somehow gains more power by face planting on the sidewalk because of a fentanyl overdose. A certain performance of vulnerability becomes a way of asserting a new type of power or doubling down on a new type of power. The audience for that stuff is not the people being most policed. I don't think it's coincidence or it feels like a haunting, uncanny repetition that the symptom all these cops describe when it comes to their fentanyl, quote unquote, overdoses is that they can't breathe. Mm -hmm. The agents of the state, the violence workers who have been in in the figurative but not literal crosshairs of the public because they choked the life out of of a man on camera as he screamed he can't breathe is that now they can't breathe too. It really inverts the power dynamic in a bid for public sympathy. And the deference that that generates is enormous. But like, what again, what this actually generates is this actual body count of people who are not being treated for actual opiate disorders or opiate use disorders, but also like how many cops like 
go into encounters with desperate people who they already find physically repellent and now have yet another reason to think that simply, quote unquote, doing their job can kill them. Mm. And that's a fantasy here, right? Just doing your job. It's not even that there's a bad guy out there. It's that simply being near this horrible, contagious stuff can kill you. When Alex and I were talking about this episode, he mentioned a couple of stories, similar stories about police believing that they had been the subject of very subtle attacks from members of the public. Why don't I let you <laughs> describe them? We were remembering the New York police who imagined that their Shake Shack milkshakes had been poisoned, who went to the hospital uh, over this imaginary poisoning and then defamed the manager of the Shake Shack, basically. That was fake. That turned out not to be real. The police officer who imagined that someone at the Starbucks had put a tampon in their coffee, which turned out to be a napkin that had accidentally fallen in the coffee. <laughs> then there was the police officer who completely fell apart in a front-facing video in their car because her egg McMuffin was running late. Most of this was last year, and it feels like there was a sort of obvious reason for that. And to my mind, it's that already existing fear of the public that we've been talking about, and also a feeling of a loss of public legitimacy that they found really stressing. What do you think? I think that's exactly it. And like social media virality has really upped the field of possibilities at the point at which you know, like two cops after a week of eating takeout, they're finally feeling sick together. Like, ergo, they must <laughs> right. be being poisoned. I, like that's that was my favorite part of that story. Is like we felt sick because for lunch we had milkshakes and Shake Shack, and then we felt gross. <laughs> like something must something must be not on the level here. It's absurd, but there is. I do think that there is something going on. Like it's hard to imagine an institution that's more insulated from public accountability than the police in American society. And I think on some level, the police are, if not consciously, but like on the level of like vibes aware of these contradictions, mm -hmm. right? The gap between their protection and lack of accountability and their illegitimacy and the obviousness of how beyond the pale a lot of their actions are. Like, I think that that's a contradiction, again, that it's very hard to day-to-day -day live. And so, of course, there's strange acting outs. And I, it's also, I think, worth thinking about in the past year, it almost seems like a lot of their behavior in public has been about almost daring people to call them on this. Think about like the amount of people who were beaten on camera at protests against police brutality. It's this kind of brinksmanship where it's like, well, you can't get rid of us. Who else will do the public beatings? As you say, they're immune from democratic accountability. Look at what's happening in Minneapolis right now. It has proven nearly impossible to democratically decide to replace an urban police department. The entire political machine is like lining up to prevent voters from having the ability to choose to do that. And I think that goes to exactly what you say. At that level, the police are beyond democratic accountability. But like the thing that makes them mad on this personal level is that like a lot of people just don't like them anymore. And I, that's why I'd like the Egg McMuffin one in particular, or the Shake Shack one too. They're used to not only having a pension and incredible job security, but they're also used to double parking their car, going to a fast food place and getting their burger for free. And like now they're like worried that when they do that, someone's going to put something in the burger. Like that's the fear they're operating with now. This is, I think it's interesting. And I think though, just on the example of like where this is going in general, I mean, I don't, I don't know what like the next step is in this in terms of like, are we going to have police, I don't know, like reacting to like 
Havana devices that are being deployed against them, like vibe, oh, like they, they were assaulted by a, a, a Soviet vibe cannon, microwave weapons, right? Yeah. Again, it, it points to these basic contradictions and contradictions that a lot of people don't want to have to deal with because they are properly terrifying. I think if everyone were to think through the fact that every police officer you see could probably get away with summarily killing you, I think a lot of civilians would be planking and having hysterical fits in the streets. <laughs> But there's something about the fact that, well, we don't get to do that because they're doing it for us. They're already out there ahead of us. We can't have a sustained conversation about qualified immunity or, say, disarming the police because we need to be dealing with the fact that they're being insulted by low-wage workers. As opposed to questioning their unearned privileges and impunity, we have to deal with their demands to be loved. And that, I think, again, points to how this is about a broader social pathology. This class of workers should not exist in its current incarnation. And the fact that we apparently need them and we apparently are tethered to continually imagining their existence, either, you know, people are held hostage by it or we're more scared of the alternative. Thank you so much, Patrick. Yay, it was so good to talk with you all. Patrick Blanchfield is the author of Gun Power, The Structure of American Violence. Timothy McMahon King is the author of Addiction Nation, what the overdose crisis reveals about us. Dan McQuaid is the video and multimedia editor for Defector, an employee-owned sports and culture website. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Melissa Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and want to help support the show, please go to wherever you get your podcasts and rate or review us. Every review helps. As always, thanks for listening.